Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where I'm very excited to introduce Josh Block. Josh Block was the host and co-producer of CBC's podcast, Uncover, Escaping Nexium. He's worked on the CBC's daily current affairs show, The Current, since 2012, including as a documentary editor. He co-created the CBC show, The Life Game and How to Do It, and he produced the CBC's first virtual reality documentary called Highway of Tears. Josh, thank you so much for joining us on the College Commons podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. You've uh, really made something of a blockbuster with the um, podcast Escaping Nexium, which is part of the series, the CBC series Uncover. So I want to pick up exactly on the angle that a made you uh, a peripheral character, but a character nonetheless in the story, and was really, aside from my general fascination with with the podcast, uh, was was the specific motivation that led me to want to interview you because you have a very specific personal connection to um, the person whom I suppose we would term the protagonist, Sarah Edmondson. But before we get to that personal connection, which is fascinating and has an angle that I really want to develop with you uh, about the Jewish connection, um, I would – is it fair for me to ask you to give, uh, uh, as we say, al regal achat, you know, a one-foot a one uh, synopsis of, of what the podcast is, Escaping Nexium? Sure. I mean, the, <clears throat> the podcast is uh, the story of – someone who happened to be my childhood friend, Sarah Edmondson, who uh, it's really her story about how she got drawn into this organization, which purported to be a self-help group, but which later the FBI claimed was a cult. Um, and how she was sort of slowly drawn into this group over 12 years, climbing higher and higher in the ranks, becoming one of their star recruiters. And then this phenomenal turnaround, this wake-up call that she has um, at a point when Nexium is her entire life, when it's her, you know, it's it's her community, it is her source of income, it is where she met her husband, and and they had a kid together. She has this wake up call and realizes that it is not what she thought it was, and uh, not only leaves the organization but becomes one of the whistleblowers um, that eventually brings the whole organization crashing down. And so I, you know, our our podcast series documents both that entry into the group and then her exit. So first of all, it's an absolutely gripping uh, podcast. Congratulations on amazing work um, as a consumer of podcasts and a listener. Um, really, it's a wonderful, wonderful and challenging podcast. Thank you. Uh, the The first thing I want to ask you to do is to lay out for us the childhood friendship and connection um, between you and Sarah Edmondson um, in the Jewish uh, realm? Sure. I mean, we we first, I think I met her when I was two years old. We went to the same daycare together and our parents are friends with each other. Um, and as we grew up, we, I guess there was two sort of main Jewish 
or I guess three main Jewish institutions that we were a part of. One was uh, a synagogue in Vancouver called Or Shalom, um, uh, a Reconstructionist uh, synagogue that that uh, we both had our bar mitzvah and bar mitzvah training at. We both both belonged to the Jewish Young People Theater, which was a small theater group, and then. Maybe most significantly, we were both part of Habonim Dror, the the Jewish youth movement. Went to summer camp for many years, and then you know to the CIT program, and then we both spent a year in, in Israel after high school on the program they call Workshop, uh, where we lived on a kibbutz, and there was other kind of educational um, components to it. Uh, so that you know that we certainly grew up in that context together, and that was sort of where we saw each other a bit after that, but essentially parted way in our, our lives went in different directions and I hadn't seen a whole lot of her um you know past our our kind of early 20s uh, until running into her after she had left this group okay so that's that's one element now um I, I hasten to point out um that when I think with you out loud about the degree to which it's legitimate to bring in a Jewish angle um I, I want to point out that I knew about this because you yourself kick off the story with this connection that you just uh, laid out. So mm-hmm. it begs the question, and you know, we'll get back to, to how powerful you think it is in a minute. But before we do that, I also want to ask you about Claire and Sarah Bronfman because uh, the Bronfman, of course, is one of the great uh, prominent Jewish families in North America. Um, and Claire and Sarah, two sisters, also figure into your story um, so can you um, sort of do the same thing and orient us briefly on the relationship between Claire and Sarah Bronfman on the one hand and Nexium and your documentary on the other? So Claire and Sarah Bronfman joined Nexium in, in the early years of the group, in the early 2000s. Um, and it was a huge achievement for Nexium, which wanted to um, spent a lot of energy trying to attract people with a profile and money and power. Um, and the, there were a number of successes. They had the, the son of a former Mexican president. Uh, they claimed to have had Richard Branson take some courses and be associated with their group. And there's a number of other people they, they point to, but perhaps no one was a bigger get in terms of um, their wealth, but also their, their connection to the group uh, than Claire and Sarah Bronfman, who not only took courses, but ended up moving uh, to the community where Nexium was centered just outside of Albany, New York, um, and investing tens of millions of dollars in the organization. Uh, essentially, you know, some people have said, handed over their inheritance to Keith Ranieri, the leader of this group. Um, and it gave that group a, a kind of degree of power um, and reach that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Claire Bronfman ended up uh, overseeing a lot of the legal battles that they ended up getting uh, involved in when they would go after and pursue their detractors in the court and were able to use her significant wealth to hire lawyers and to launch frivolous lawsuits against people who they saw as their enemies. Um, so they were they were committed to that extent that they were willing to invest uh, a lot of, of money in, in the group. Um, and it was, you know, it was actually something that, that their father at one point was quite desperate to get them out of and, and never successfully was able to um, before he passed away. So um, by my count now, we have 
four characters in the story who have you know, salient Jewish connections. Um, you uh, and Sarah Edmondson, um, the Jewish connection which you actually bring into the story. And then Claire and Sarah Bronfman, who are secondary characters, but in the background along the lines that you just described, whose Jewishness is also backgrounded, uh, maybe not even mentioned explicitly, except insofar as many people know the Bronfman name. Along this line, I mean, the other, one of the other central characters in the story is, is Sarah Edmondson's best friend within Nexium, who ultimately recruits her into this secret sorority uh, within the group, and that's Lauren Salzman and her mom, Nancy Salzman, who is, who, uh, her mom is Nancy Salzman, who is the president of Nexium, and her daughter was one of, one of her best friends. So there, you know, now that you, <laughs> that you're highlighting sort of the number of Jewish characters that, that are central to this, I mean, I would say Lauren's even more significant in the podcast um, as a character who is Jewish um, and part of this story. For our listeners who haven't listened to the podcast yet, that that is kind of a climactic uh, uh, moment in defining it as a cult, and it, it's a big deal. So thank you for pointing that out. So so having established that, um, here's the next um, step in the thinking and in the, in the inquiry that I want to uh, surface. I would argue that one of the narrative streams of the 20... 20th, maybe second half of the 20th and the 21st century uh, Jewish story in North America is the spiritual search of many Jews that takes them outside of Judaism, but often not to the point of going to Christianity. That Christianity holds for, uh, I would argue, many, 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 perhaps a vast majority of Jews enough of a sense of discomfort that they're not willing to take their spiritual search uh, all the way to Christianity or, for that matter, to Islam by and large, but they nevertheless sense a lack or um, uh, something they're looking to fill that Judaism isn't uh, obviously or conveniently or readily uh, providing for them. Um, and I do want to go back and remove the word major in terms of it being a major narrative stream. I don't think it's a major narrative stream, but I do think it is a stream. I think it's a thing. <laughs> and so so the first question I want to ask you is, do you agree that it's a thing in our world? Uh, yes. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative and a story I'm aware of because of my proximity to the, and my involvement in the, in the Jewish community and, um, and the fact that I, the people I, many of the people I know are Jewish. And so I've seen that story play out in various ways. And of course, you know, outside of my friend group as well. The one thing that comes to mind is, is that unique to the Jewish community is that a story that is, that many communities are grappling with and facing, uh, is there a kind of a broader story in our society about people searching for, for meaning and for spirituality outside of, um, of uh, established institutions and places that their parents' generation might have found it more readily. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure the answer, but I, I do agree that it is it is certainly part of the Jewish story of the last, you know, whatever, 50 or 100 years. Indeed. Uh, I don't know if there have been sociological studies in any scientific way about what we're saying, but I do, I do think 
um, that most of us have some kind of anecdotal connection with people. You know, the term Jubu is a standard term nowadays, <laughs> right. just as, right. an, as an example. Right. So, uh, so, so then the follow-up question is this Nexium experience in which Jews figure, at least in the story you had to tell, uh, disproportionately prominently. Do you think that that um, phenomenon of the Jewish search for meaning outside of Judaism uh, is the motivator for the main characters who got uh, involved in Nexium, or do you think it's something else or a combination? But before you tell me that, when I initially approached you, I immediately said, you know, that the Jewish thing is, is what particularly struck me. Did that in and of itself surprise you, or was it in fact something that was already on your mind? It's it certainly is well on my mind to the extent that you know I recognize that there's mention of it in the podcast, and I knew that obviously my um, part of this of the story and part of Sarah's story that I tell is one where you know growing up she talks about and I recognize that she felt that she wasn't entirely accepted um, in the community that we were a part of in Hamonim. Um, and that she struggled with that. And I saw her struggling with that in her, in her teenage years. Um, and that we, I had discussed with her that, that her recruitment into Nexium and the thing that she was searching for in her, in her twenties was that sense of acceptance was trying to find a community that she truly felt like she belonged to. Um, and in hindsight, you know, Sarah Edmondson says that she thinks that people that recruited her into it really were able to, to smell that out, could see that kind of vulnerability in her and um, and offered her something that, that she really wanted. And, 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 it, and it gave it to her. I mean, she really um, had strong and what she felt like were strong and meaningful connections. Um, so I think that there's a connection to the Jewish world that she grew up in because, you know, part of it, she felt like she didn't belong to, not that Judaism rejected her, but just the particular social group that, that she was a part of. Um, so it wasn't surprising to that extent. The surprising thing for me is sort of like, is there a strong enough Jewish theme that runs through this story? Um, can we make a claim about what happened to Sarah and what happened to the other people that were Jewish that were involved in this group? Is there something um, relevant about their Judaism um, and their involvement in this group? And I'm curious to know more what you think. What did you hear that made you feel like outside of the the mention of, of Sarah's sort of Jewish upbringing? What, there, what other themes were there in the story that 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 made you see um, something that stood out to you in terms of its its Jewishness? The 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 phenomenon that that we agree exists at least unscientifically of of Jews uh, searching. Um, I I see um, more relevant than where they necessarily go. So the fact that they went to Nexium is I think, as you intimated in your answer uh, a minute ago, th the attractions that Nexium may have held for certain people are attractions, communitarian uh, attractions, also attractions of a certain kind of promise that all religious systems, all cults, and all, I mean, al almost anything that's aspirational in life uh, promises or purports to promise or tries to promise or what have you. So in that sense, the receptacle 
of Nexium um, is not distinct, does not have a distinctive Jewish angle as, as I see it, um, or at least I didn't feel that way when I asked you the question. Mm-hmm. I do think that Judaism has a specific push, and I use the word specific advisedly because I don't think it's a unique push, but I do think it's a specific push, and I think there's a couple factors. I think that one uh, is that uh, Judaism is, is a tiny minority, and um, one is subject uh, to uh, different idioms of finding meaning when uh, on the outside of one's community, when one's community is is when you're always an enclave and you're surrounded by definition on all sides by virtue of your minorityhood with so many other languages and opportunities. And, and, and so I think there's just a statistical component to this, which does does, I think, define some of the Jewish experience. I think there's another element in Judaism, which is that uh, I think Judaism has, if one can speak of civilization as making a choice, that Judaism as a civilization chose to sideline uh, explicit forms of spirituality that um, that have to do with mystical connectedness. It's not that we have erased them. It's not that we have uh, disenfranchise them completely, but we the, the civilization has chosen not to emphasize them as the primary mode of participation. Sure. The modes that we 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 have Jewish law, we have Jewish community, we have Jewish customs, we have the Jewish calendar, we have Jewish education, we have all these other categories uh, that that precede downright mysticism, that intimate mysterious experience of the divine, um, although we have it, and if one sought it out, one could find it. Um, if you just grow up Jewish in North America anytime, probably ever since Jews came to North America, it, it's the least likely expression of Judaism that you're, you're, you would probably have found, and that's probably true more or less throughout history, I would argue. And then the third thing that I see happening in Judaism all the time is Judaism is uh, foreign to Jews, it's a it's a it's a thing that one has to jumpstart to create. This is a function of minorityhood, but it's also a function of the culture that we are that we are perpetuating. Uh, and I say culture meaning civilization, everything about it, the religion, the culture, the communitarianism, Israel, the language, everything. It it doesn't just happen. You don't just you're not just born Jewish and you own it. And that's it. You have to acquire it, and it, it's uh, it's expensive financially because you need education. It's uh, it requires time, expertise, patience, and and motivation. You have to have an incentive hmm. uh, to, to do it. And and so, in some ways, the the the, da- the, the deck is stacked against us. Uh, I think people intuit this, by the way, and I think it's one of the reasons that, insofar as people admire Jews, these are implicit reasons as to why they admire us, because they recognize all of these challenges, and yet we persist. So I I don't mean to romanticize or to pat us on the back and be self-congratulatory. I'm just observing that these are difficult things, and if one does have a very natural, very human, very widely experienced urge for certain kinds of connection – uh, it's 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 gonna it's gonna happen that a certain percentage of Jews can't find it in Judaism, and so um, that is what's behind my question. My sense that that is uh, an inevitability of a certain subset of the Jewish people in any given moment, and I think then even that subset runs the gamut. 
There are those who really work hard to stay Jewish and still pursue these things. I interviewed one of these people on another another uh, episode of this podcast where yoga was the outlet, but this this person had a passionate and very explicit Zionism and Judaism, and, and, and yoga is bland enough in the monotheistic thing that it doesn't contradict, and mm-hmm. it's, it's easy enough. Same thing with Jubus, for example. And right. there are those, then there are those who push the envelope, and I saw this as an example of that. I, it's interesting for you to lay that out about some of the exposed vulnerabilities of, of um, Jews in North America uh, in, ter- in terms of being attracted by, and not that it's necessarily always a bad thing. Uh, Nexium is not obviously the same as being part of a yoga community or a Buddhist community, um, right. but there is a certain kind of um, a, a challenge to hanging on to uh, your Jewish identity in, in North America that um, other uh, philosophies and, and other groups um, might become more attractive and easier to gravitate towards um, because of that, that, that challenge. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. It's, I mean, it's captivating in a way to imagine the kind of uh, a dulling of, of one's critical faculty and the, the capacity to get sucked into these things, which, by the way, your your characters spoke about quite a bit. That that strikes me as a more human, a generic thing. I don't know uh, if you want to elaborate on that, what it was like for you to encounter people, especially Sarah, whose awakening casts into such stark um, relief her, her, her lack of being woke, I guess, before. Uh, it's pretty stark, pretty, pretty shocking in its way, even though many of us have heard of cults before and we know that you know, we've heard of it. But it must have been very, very... Uh, remarkable for you, this person you've known, to to see her um, have been that person, and then, for lack of a better term, to wake up from it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the central questions for me was how how is it that someone who grew up in the same community as me, with the same kind of education, signs up for this self improvement workshop? I mean, she takes this five day intensive. Um, program that they offer it's their entry level course and then 12 years later she is being branded physically branded with a cauterizing pen on her body with what she later discovers is the initials of the group's leader um Keith Ranieri. how how does that process work and you know the more as we were investigating the story and the more media um that were coming out and covering it in a really quick way in the in, in, in the way that that, you know, a newspaper or other media, you know, ha- have the space to do it, which is kind of to focus more on the sensational. I was, 
I realized that what we could do with this podcast and what I was intrigued by was like, what is that journey? How, how do you sign up for the self-help course and then end up 12 years later getting branded? What does that process of indoctrination look like? Um, and it was fascinating to hear and, and really, you know, a, a large part of, of what that is about is attacking people's ability to critically think and attacking Sarah Edmondson's ability to, to, to trust her, um, the questions that might come up in her head to, to, to trust her critical faculties. Um, and it's, it's remarkable how that happens, especially, you know, cults sort of operate in all kinds of different ways and there's religious cults and political cults, but in the self-help context, the way that was done was to have its me- the, the membership of the group to, to, to see the part of their mind that was questioning what they were a part of as a weakness. So that whenever Sarah kind of arrives at something along her 12-year journey that she that raises a red flag or she thinks is some kind of an issue, she uh, she is uh, trained and and learns that this is part of of the barrier that's that's how that's preventing her from achieving her personal goals that she's constantly having to question and um and find ways out of of a situation rather than confronting it and so she pushes away that part of her brain that, that says this is not okay and in fact that that was her experience when she was getting branded which was part of this and you know this initiation she was told into this women's group in nexium she wanted to run part of her just said get me out of here this is not okay i don't want this to happen and then right away you know 12 years in very quickly the other voice comes in saying this is exactly your issue you try to find the you know try to find the way out, you try and find the exit, you you don't have the, the kind of character and discipline that is required for you to achieve your personal goals, you need to stay here. Um, and it was a remarkable thing to, to hear and to hear how that happens. And then, you know, it's baked into the curriculum. She had taken thousands of hours of, of Nexium courses um, that had got her to a place where she was very sort of well-trained and she taught these courses as well and, and taught others. Right, right. She was, um, she was an exponent of it, not just she a... She was an expert, exactly. And and it's remarkable to, to see how that works. And it was, you know, I, we tell her account, but I talked to dozens of people that were part of the group and, and, um, and, and especially those who kind of climb higher in the organization. This was a an experience we heard about again and again, that the more Nexium courses you take, the kind of worse you start feeling about yourself. Um, and uh, the more you feel like you have to take more Nexium courses to feel better about yourself. And you're kind of caught in this, in this terrible cycle. Oh. And, 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 you know, there was no, no small part of this was a, a, um, a deep seated misogyny that ran through the philosophy of the organization that uh, that you know, Keith Bernieri believed that that women lacked the kind of character and discipline that men had, um, and that they needed an extra special kind of focus and attention and 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 curriculum to address their deficiency as as women. And it was that was something that Sarah really internalized and and tells me that she still struggles with that pull apart what of what it, uh, what are the remnants of this group uh, and the things that um i was teaching and, and i learned that are totally corrupt and uh and i need to get rid of and what should i retain one of the complicating pieces of it is um that sarah believes and many people that i've talked to who take their courses 
do believe that that there was value in what they learned. This is something that is, is really, and this might get to some of its attractions. And it's it's, it's it, there was a there was a definite stream in the interviews you gave, uh, or the interviews you took rather, where it seemed to me that everybody who left Nexium and gave you an interview made the point of articulating aspects of its bona fide value. And even even I, who am totally unsympathetic to Nexium from the get-go, to the degree I had heard of it, which is maybe just a you know a blurb and on some news thing, but and then through the podcast, I'm completely unsympathetic to Nexium. It's all villainous to me. But um, I too am hearing in the ideas that are related by you about Nexium's own philosophy. I'm hearing bona fide wisdom embedded in a lot of the misogyny and the violence and the the lack of critical thinking that struck me as very compelling and disturbing yeah i and it is so i mean there's a, a few things going on there so first of all nexium needed to have a very powerful hook if 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 people entered the group and were you know and if most people were just com- entirely repulsed by what they heard, um, especially in those first courses, they would have not survived for very long. Um, and something close to 20,000 people took Nexium courses, and a small percentage of those would, would carry on in the group and, and, and stay connected. And that's what you need to run an organization like this. You do need a huge pool of people at least to be willing to take the course, um, to pay a lot of money, to help um, finance the organization, and then also to, to become a, a, a pool of candidates from which a uh, select number will become lifers. Will will join the organization. Will be you know a, a, and commit to it for life. Um, so it, it is not surprising on some level that that people who took their, their their initial courses found them of some use. And one of the things that's going on there is that those entry level courses were really an amalgam of of stuff that that Keith Raniere, um borrowed from cognitive behavioral therapy, from other kind of large group awareness training programs like like Est and Landmark, which became Landmark, mm-hmm. um, even some kind of Scientology stuff. Um, it wasn't particularly remarkable. It wasn't particularly unique. Um, what was happening there, and, and you know, people I talked to who said they took these courses and, and found value have reflected on the idea that look, if you if, if you first of all you spend five thousand dollars to take a course, there's a huge incentive to have a, an epiphany or a breakthrough or really find value in it. Um, and if you have a group of you know people in a room for five days straight in intense reflection, I imagine without any kind of specific framework, you're going to have what you feel like are discovering, you know, you, you are in an unnatural environment. You're germinating it. You're germinating and you're sharing with other people and you're creating a space that is potentially safe to open up and to talk about things that you, you know, you've probably come there with issues you want to deal with. So you know, all those things make it unsurprising on some level. Um, that people found those courses beneficial, it does become it, it becomes really complicated though when you know for someone like Sarah who who moves past just those entry level courses who spent many years uh, teaching all sorts of different courses and and um, 
really internalizing this philosophy. I mean, making that it was the world. It was the way that she saw the world. Um, trying to parse out afterwards what is worth retaining uh, and still feeling like, you know, having a hard time letting go of the idea that like that, that what you did might not have been benefit beneficial to people. I mean, she really does still believe and then she might not be wrong that that she helped people work past their personal issues. Um, and that there were some of the tools that she used uh, are not things that she just wants to abandon. And at the same time, you know, the, the FBI's extensive investigation into this group and, and the, the six-week court case revealed far more disturbing things than we had even discovered in our podcast. And essentially that this whole organization was um, a way, you know, that Keith Raniere was using this group to groom women um, to have sex with him several times underage girl, uh, girls to have sex with him, that it was a, a really a, a complicated system that he used to control people. Um, so it's, it, it, I think people, I think Sarah's left in a very difficult position and people who were part of the organization for a long time in trying to find a sense of self-identity and, uh, and a kind of personal view of the world and philosophy that, um, that makes sense for them. And, and the, the, the call experts we talked to have spoken about how long that can take. And it can be a lifelong journey that you don't entirely recover from um, when you are sort of turned on your head to that extent. And the relationship to Sarah's mother uh, was particularly poignant towards the end um, to as kind of the, uh, the relationship, the, 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 the locus in the most important relationship where all of those lingering uh, ambiguities and pain resided. It was very, uh, very difficult to hear, very compelling. Yeah, I mean, that part was uh, doing that interview with, with Sarah's mom was, I think, one of the most difficult and, and moving things to me because I, I, I know her mom and, and hadn't, as I was interviewing Sarah, sort of hadn't entirely considered her mom's perspective on this whole thing or, or completely appreciated it until I sat down with her mom and heard just how um, torturous the whole thing was for her because she was stuck in this bind. Um, do I confront my daughter and risk losing contact with her and losing contact with her grandson? Or does she have to kind of play along with it in order to keep tabs on the group and keep tabs on her daughter? And she chose to do the latter, um, which was very, <laughs> very difficult because, mm. you know, as she says in the podcast, she felt like, you know, she actually went and, and, and took one of their courses because she wanted to to suss out this group and, and, and see what they were about. And right away, she, she could sense something was off and, 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 and felt like it was a, a coercive group and yet had to be so careful about how much she challenged Sarah at all on this. It's very, it's very compelling. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was really a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and to hear your perspective. And I wish you uh, every success on your upcoming projects. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.